Thanks for checking out this week's podcast from Center Street Church. We pray it blesses, encourages, and inspires you. Well, happy Resurrection Weekend to all of you here at uh, Central Campus. Uh, Those of you who are up at the chapel and over in the choir overflow room, all of you that are in different parts of this building. Uh, And by the way, since we're talking about this building, we do have four services. And so please take advantage of other services. We have one at 9. We have one tonight at 6. We have a Saturday night service at 6.30. That's just for all of you who are at Uh, every little crevice of this building right now and uh, just watching us um, via video feed. But we do want to welcome you here uh, at this campus as well as those of you who are joining us online and uh, those of you who are meeting together at one of our other campuses uh, in Airdrie, in Bridgeland, uh, in the Crowfoot Theaters in Northwest Calgary and also in South Calgary. Many years ago, uh, when I was young and foolish and newly married, and sometimes those things go together, um, we had a project that needed to get accomplished. And a friend told me about a couple of guys that were new to town, and they were, they were, um, they were skilled in this particular uh, area that we needed help in. And uh, so I ended up approaching them and asking them for a quote. Uh, their quote was significantly lower uh, than other quotes that I had um, received, and so I met with them just to make sure that we were on the same page, and we essentially were. And so um, my wife Gwen met them, and um, after the fact, uh, just expressed some reservations about these fellows. Um, But, you know, I'm just, you know, a typical German just looking for a good deal. And and so I went with these guys, and I gave them the job. Uh, Well, I I should have listened to my wife. I mean... um, these guys took me to the cleaners. We lost several thousand dollars, and um, they were just dishonest. And um, yeah, okay, my wife has reminded me of that more than once. Um, but uh, you see, here's the thing. I, I put my trust in someone who turned out to be untrustworthy. Now, I'm sure that I'm not the only one that's ever done that. Uh, I mean, haven't we all at some point in time put our trust in something or someone that we assumed was a sure thing, only to discover later that our assumption was wrong? Some of you invested heavily in a guaranteed, red-hot, can't-go-wrong stock, promising a big, fat return in a short period of time. But the whole thing went sideways, and now the stock is hardly worth the paper that it's on. What you assumed would bring a quick return turned out to be a complete loss. Some of you believed a certain career would give you significance, meaning, and happiness in life. And so you set your sights in that direction. You went to school. You ultimately got the career of your dreams. But now, years later, you are far from being content. And you find your chosen career is sucking the life out of you. What you assumed and placed your hope in didn't turn out the way that you thought that it would. Some of you figured if you just owned that dream home and that vacation home and just got the right assortment of toys and a certain amount of cash in the bank, life would be amazing and you'd be content and satisfied. 
But you've achieved all that. And you're not doing well at all. You wake up each day saying to yourself, there has got to be more than this. What you assumed would bring satisfaction didn't turn out the way that you believed it would. Or maybe you figured the key to contentment and completeness is being married to the right person and having a family together. And so you got married, you had a family, but now years later, in your honest moments, you have to admit it's not, what, not at all what you thought it would be. The emptiness remains inside of you. You're still discontented. And in so many ways, you're feeling even more lonely and more disappointed than you've ever been. Again, what you placed your hope in didn't turn out the way that you believed it would. All of us at one time or another have put our hope in things that turned out to be flawed. And we've experienced feelings of disappointment and discouragement and even disillusionment that often accompanies misguided assumptions. Now the Bible tells the story of a fellow who came to this place in his life. His name was Peter. Peter was a fisherman. And for most of his life, he dreamed of the day that his people would be freed from the oppression of the Roman Empire. He'd pretty much given up hope of that ever happening in his lifetime. But then, he met Jesus. He'd never met anyone like Jesus before. His wisdom was profound. His personality, totally captivating. And his power, well, Peter had never seen such power displayed before. He witnessed Jesus heal the sick, give sight to the blind, raise the dead. He watched Jesus walk on water, watched Jesus calm the raging sea. He was absolutely convinced that Jesus had what it would take to bring Rome to its knees, to free his people. And he could hardly wait to see his dream become a reality. And then even though Jesus repeatedly told him and the rest of the disciples that his kingdom was not of this world and that in fact he would soon be arrested and be put to death, Peter refused to hear it or believe it. In Matthew 16, 22, we read, Peter took Jesus aside once he had talked about this kind of thing. And the scriptures say that he rebuked Jesus. He said, Jesus, this will never happen to you. When Jesus predicted that his disciples would desert him and deny him, Peter boldly said, not me, Jesus. I mean, they may all desert you, but not me. In Matthew 26, he said, even if all fall away on account of you, I never will. And Jesus turned to him and said, I tell you the truth. This very night before the rooster crows, you will disown me three times. But Peter declared, even if I have to die with you, Lord, I will never disown you. And the other disciples said the same. Peter was prepared to lay his life down for Jesus. He was all in. However, a few short days later, 
all of that began to change. When Peter witnessed Jesus being arrested and then being beaten to a pulp, then he saw him being nailed to a cross. And Jesus seemed powerless to defend himself. Peter's hopes began to unravel. In a very short period of time, his assumption that Jesus was the man to defeat Rome evaporated. And he began to believe that he put his hope and his trust in the wrong person. Which is why three times he denied that he even knew Jesus. Good Friday was Peter's dark night of the soul. He was discouraged and disillusioned. We've all been there, haven't we? At one time or another, we've all had to face the disappointment of discovering that the person that we placed our hope in wasn't trustworthy. For some of us, it was a friend. For others of us, it was a spouse or a parent, a boss, a teacher, a coach, a pastor. Someone we placed our trust in and who over time betrayed us or hurt us, abused us, or just failed to be there for us. We've all felt the discouragement, the disillusionment of our own Good Friday. So how do you know when discouragement has a hold of you? Well, first of all, you know you're discouraged when, like Peter, you want to quit. Because you fail badly, you let someone down badly, or because the hope, the trust that you had in someone or something is gone. You know that you're discouraged when, like Peter, you want to withdraw. When you want to run and hide, you want to lock yourself in your home, turn off the lights, and avoid the people who love and care about you the most. You know you're discouraged when, like Peter, you want to escape. When you look for something or someone to alleviate the pain and the discouragement and the despair. Those who have gone through our freedom sessions, they refer to this as the temptation to medicate. Some people pour themselves into their work. This is what Peter did. This was his escape. He went back fishing. Others sit around surfing the net watching far too much television. Some shop till they drop and they're broke. Some people blame others and pour a lot of their emotional energy into seeking revenge, lashing out and scheming up ways to get back at the person who hurt them, the person who let them down. Some medicate themselves by overeating, drinking to excess, watching pornography, using drugs. Now, all of this is truly unfortunate because after these people return to reality, their problems still exist. In fact, they're often worse now. None of these options, whether it's quitting or withdrawing or escaping, solve the problem. We only end up cynical, skeptical, bitter, alone, directionless, and like Peter, at rock bottom. 
But here's the good news. Peter didn't stay at rock bottom. Something happened that would forever change Peter, that would bring him out of hiding and deep discouragement, turn him into a man with a fiery passion and boldness that God would use to turn his world upside down in a good way. In fact, something happened that would forever change the other disciples as well. When Jesus was arrested and crucified, the disciples, they were cowards. They fled and they, 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 they hid like little frightened children. However, a short time later, something gave them a renewed conviction and passion and boldness. Something happened that, that motivated them to leave their occupations, to sell their possessions, and to boldly proclaim their faith despite facing prison, torture, and even death. And that something was more than a missing body. That something was more than an empty tomb. No, that something was nothing less than personally encountering the resurrected Christ. In fact, I believe one of the greatest evidences for the resurrection, and there are many, which I spell out in the Why Believe series, but there are many evidences for, for the resurrection but one of the greatest ones is how it changed Peter and the other disciples. 1 Corinthians 15, Paul says that after the resurrection of Jesus, Jesus appeared to Cephas, referring to Peter, and then to the twelve. After that, he appeared to more than 500 of the brothers and sisters at the same time. And these people were forever changed, and many went to their deaths proclaiming the good news of Jesus Christ. You know, people will die for what they believe to be true. I mean, suicide bombers are doing this on almost a daily basis somewhere on our planet. But people will not die for what they know is a deliberate lie. History tells us that most of the disciples died a cruel martyr's death because of their faith in the resurrected Christ. Surely one of them, if you think about this, would have caved in and told the truth if they knew the resurrection was a hoax or it was a fabricated story. But they didn't. Back in 1973, Chuck Colson, he ended up in prison for the part that he played in what's known as the Watergate scandal. In which a group of no more than a dozen people conspired to cover up the Watergate break-in to protect the President of the United States. This is what Colson writes. He says, I know the resurrection is a fact, and Watergate proved it to me. Now you ask how? Because 12 men testified that they had seen Jesus raised from the dead. And then they proclaimed that truth for 40 years, never once denying it. Everyone was beaten, tortured, stoned, and put in prison. They would not have endured that if it weren't true. On the other hand, he says, Watergate embroiled 12 of the most powerful men in the world. And they couldn't keep a lie 
for three weeks. You're telling me that 12 apostles could keep alive for 40 years? Absolutely impossible. You see, this change in Peter and the other disciples came about because they saw, they saw the living, resurrected Christ. Because Jesus is alive, Peter's discouragement was gone. And his life was radically changed. This is what Peter wrote sometime after the resurrection in 1 Peter 1. All glory to God, the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. For it is his boundless mercy that has given us the privilege of being born again. So that we are now members of God's own family. Now we live in the hope of eternal life because Christ rose from the dead. Did you notice the word hope there and its linkage to the resurrection of Jesus Christ? Christianity hinges on the resurrection. Gene Apple says, hope always begins in the darkest places. For example, one of the most common symbols of Christianity is the cross. Some people wear crosses around their neck. How many are wearing a cross today around your neck? Well, we've got a few of you, at least a few that will admit it. Anyways, people wear it around their neck. But the cross originally was a cruel instrument of execution. Today, that would be like someone wearing a little electric chair or a lethal injection needle around their neck. How many are doing that? No, I'm just kidding. Yeah. Now, how, how strange that would be. And yet, you see, we wear crosses because Jesus took darkness and he brought it into the light. God took pain and torture and despair and he brought hope out of it. God took death and brought about a resurrection. Friends, the empty cross and the empty tomb is the basis of true hope. Peter, his discouragement melted away because when he saw the empty tomb and then later met the risen Christ, he knew that his assumptions, that his faith and his hope in Jesus was not wrong. His assumption about Christ was true. It was sure and friend, if you are discouraged today, be, most likely you are living on the wrong side of the resurrection. You're still fixated on Good Friday. You're still focused on the crucified Christ rather than on the resurrected Christ. And yet the empty tomb reminds us that even though there are times that our circumstances feel like Friday, Resurrection Sunday, it's a coming. It's a coming. We serve a living God, folks. We serve a risen Savior. Which means that Jesus is part of every equation. Which means he's part of every situation. There is no situation that is hopeless. There is no failure that is unredeemable because with Jesus, all things are possible. 
He died to make it possible. Now this leaves us with just two major implications. And the first one is this, because Jesus lives, his claims are true. His claims are true. You see, whereas other religious teachers, they put their teaching out front and they essentially say, do this, follow this path to find the way. Jesus puts himself out front and he says, I'm the way, follow me. Jesus implied that the truth of his teachings would be validated not only by his life and his teachings, but even more so by his death and resurrection. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes, if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless and, and so is your faith. In other words, if Jesus is still in the grave, then all of Jesus' claims and his promises in the word, they're, they're meaningless. They hold no authority at all. If he's still in the grave, then, then, then he didn't create us. Do you realize that? And if he didn't create us, where does that leave us? We're nothing more than a, a chance collection of prebiotic soup, is what they say. Which means we have no meaning in life. We have no God-ordained purpose. Our existence ends when we die. That's it. It's, it's all she wrote, folks. I believe this is what Paul had in mind when he, he said in verse 32 of 1 Corinthians 15, if the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink for tomorrow we die. Paul says, I mean, if, if, if Christ has not been raised from the dead, then, 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 then we're not going to get raised from the dead either. So that means that this life is all there is, folks. And I guess we just might as well, you know, party our life away and max out our credit card and Eat the whole box of donuts at once. I mean, who cares? This is as good as it's going to get. And folks, that's why there is so much unhappiness in the world. Because everyone is seeking happiness. They're trying to find the, 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 the greatest thrill. To have it all, to experience it all. Everyone's shooting for that. But you see, the best human life is ultimately disappointing if we're honest. We know this to be true because we all know people or we've read about people who have it all. And yet, they're miserable. Solomon, wisest man on the planet, in his day at least, he had it all, he experienced it all. And yet one of the world's wisest people said, it's all meaningless. It's a chasing after the wind. The longer you live, the more you realize that pleasures are fleeting, that your body is slowly wearing out. You know, after our Good Friday service, a woman that I hadn't seen in over a decade, I think it's been 15 years or so, she came up to me and it was near, near the end of our conversation. Um, she said, you know what? She says, you look great. You haven't aged at all. And I said, thanks. But I wanted to say, when was the last time you had your eyes checked? Because you see, I know better. 
We all know better. We don't like to think about it, but if we're honest, our bodies are aging. We're breaking down. And the reality is life is really futile if there is no hope beyond the grave. And Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19, if our hope is only in this life, we of all people are to be pitied. See, that's precisely the point. The tomb is still occupied. We have no basis for any true hope. We have no basis for hope in this life or the next. However, the Bible says in verse 20, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. That's what the scriptures say. The tombs of Muhammad and Buddha and Confucius, those tombs are occupied, folks. But the tomb of Christ is empty to this day. And that is because Jesus is risen, as he said. Our hope as Christians is not in a system of rituals. It's not in a system of, 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 uh, of teaching on how to live better or be a more, live a more peaceful life. It's not in a pathway. No, it's in a person. Jesus Christ, the living God, who knows us and loves us and who daily wants to walk with us and show us the way. Because Christ lives. His claims, his promises are true. Which brings us to a second implication. Because Jesus lives, not only are his claims true, but we can trust him. We can trust him with respect to his teachings and the promises of Scripture. 2 Timothy 3.16 says that all Scripture is God-breathed. And it's useful for some things. Teaching, rebuking, correcting, and training in righteousness. Now, if Jesus is still in the tomb, folks, then the teaching in the Bible has no more authority than the writings of any other person, religious or otherwise. It's just another book. Tim Keller says, people say to me, I could never become a Christian. And he says, when I ask them why, they say something like, well, there are parts of the Bible that I find offensive. And Keller says, years ago, People were often offended by what the Bible had to say about money. And he says, today in New York, which is where he lives, today in New York, he says, they're much more offended by what the Bible has to say about sex. And Keller says, I often say to them, the issue on which everything hinges is not whether you like Jesus' teaching, but whether or not he rose from the dead. For if Jesus rose from the dead, then he is Lord. Which means what he said is the truth. And you're going to have to accept all of it. Whether you understand it or like it or not. If on the other hand, he says, Jesus is still in the tomb. 
then you don't need to worry about anything, he said. You can just dismiss it. Do you see how the resurrection affects everything? Because Jesus lives, I can know that his word, the scriptures, is true. I know and can rest on the promises of his word. Even if I don't understand parts of it or find parts of it hard to accept, I can know that he's got my best interests at heart and that his commands, his principles, and his precepts, they can be trusted. They're given with my best interests at heart. They're given from a loving father who wired me up and knows me better than anyone. Because he lives, I can also know that as I read and as I meditate on the scriptures, his spirit, his living spirit is helping me understand his word and is speaking to me through the scriptures. These are the words of a living God, not the words of someone who's been dead for 20 centuries. My question is, to what extent do you believe that Jesus wants to speak to you regularly through his written word? Do you understand the privilege that we have? Almighty God wants to speak to us through his word. Furthermore, because Jesus lives we can trust him to forgive us of our sins and the regrets of our past. Colossians 2.14 says, he has forgiven all our sins and canceled every record we owed. Christ has done away with it by nailing it to the cross. We all have regrets. We've all said things we wish we hadn't said. We've all done things we wish we hadn't done. Now here's the thing, if someone hasn't forgiven you, or if you haven't forgiven someone, then you're not free, you're actually in bondage. But you see, that's not the worst of it, because if Jesus is still in the tomb, then you're going to remain in that bondage. There is no hope of being set free. 1 Corinthians 15, 17, Paul writes, If Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Can you feel the hopelessness and the weight of that? But you see, Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. And that means there is true forgiveness in Christ Jesus. It's one of God's greatest gifts. In 1 John 1, 9, we find this promise. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. My question is, have you done that? Have you sincerely confessed your sins to him? Or are you still trying to pay back God for the condemnation you feel for all the wrong that you've done. Romans 8, 1 says, there is no 
condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, for those who have embraced Christ by faith, who have confessed their sins to him and now have Christ residing in and through them. Jesus said, I did not come to condemn you. I came to die for you so that I can pardon you and help you put the past behind and start all over again. He rose from the grave, folks, so that he could empower us to live in victory today. Because Christ lives, our past can be forgiven. We don't have to carry a load of guilt around with us anymore. Thirdly, because Christ lives, we can trust him to empower and guide us in the present. After the resurrection and just before ascending into heaven, we read in Matthew 28 that Jesus gave this promise to his disciples and to us today. He said, and surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. I am with you always. Isn't it comforting to know that the God of the universe is with us? Now, if Jesus is still in the tomb, well, then the promises, that particular promise that I just read you, is a bogus promise. It is null and void. If Jesus is still in the tomb, then we are on our own. We are alone, and we are left to fend for ourselves. Now, think about that for a moment. Feel the despair of that for just a moment. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead. Because he lives, when we put our trust in him and in, invite him to be the Lord of our lives, he invades our lives. And he begins to live his life of love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, kindness, and all the other wonderful fruits of the Spirit. He lives them through us. We're not going through the motions of dry religion when we embrace him. Hoping that we're appeasing an angry God. We're not playing church. We're not going through the motions. No, we're involved in growing an authentic friendship with the living Christ. We have the privilege every day of waking up and talking to Jesus before we talk to anybody else. Isn't that cool? We have the privilege of asking him to do our day with us and to give us insight and wisdom and direction along the way and give us power when we need power and strength. Because he lives, we know that he's doing things. He's impacting other people through us in ways that we could never accomplish in our own strength. Because he lives, we can know that nothing we do in his name is ever done in vain. The prayers that we pray, the acts of service and generosity will not only glorify our Lord, but will make an eternal difference in the life of others. And then fourthly, because Christ lives, we can trust him to take us to heaven. You know, one of the greatest differences between different religions concerns their, their version of the future. 
if there is life after death? That's the big question, is there? Is there hope beyond the grave? Will we see those who have gone before us again? Now, some believe that there's no hope at all, that our existence ends at the grave. Bertrand Russell once said, when I die, I believe that I shall rot, and that is the end. He was a real optimist. (laughs) Others think of history not as a line that has a beginning and is going to end someday, but they see history as a circle in which everything is repeated continuously in an endless cycle of reincarnations. There are many views of the future, but of this we are certain. Death is a reality. It will come to each of us. George Bernard Shaw, he wrote, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. (laughs) C.S. Lewis once wrote that war does not increase the number of deaths. And when I first read that, I thought, are you kidding me? And then I thought about it, and he's absolutely right. War does not increase the number of deaths because death is total and universal in each and every generation. Every time we hear that someone... Uh, especially someone that's close to us, is terminally ill. You know, our gut wrenches and, and we're saddened, and rightfully so. And yet the, the truth is, we're all terminally ill. And unless Jesus comes back first, which he may at any time, by the way, but unless he comes back first, we're, we're all going to take our turn going through the valley of the shadow of death. Hebrews 9.27 says, It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that the judgment. And yet in talking with people over the years, I'm amazed at how many people have given little or no consideration to their eternal destiny. Most think that they will go to heaven, but, but when I ask them, well, what's that based on? They, they usually say something like, well, I'm not really sure, it's just what I think, I guess. Some time ago, I got into a discussion on this subject with a university student, and he went on for quite some time explaining in eloquent terms, you know, his view of the meaning of life and also the afterlife. And when he was through, I I asked him just, you know, what's all that based on? And he said he really wasn't quite sure. He said it was a collection of, of, of various philosophies, but... Then he made a comment. He says, you know, it's primarily based on a book that I read some time ago by an author. I I can't remember his name. And I said, you know, are are you telling me that you're staking your life and your eternity on some book you read by a person you don't even know? I'm just so amazed I'm baffled at how many people are willing to risk their eternal destiny on a hunch, on some theory. This fellow said to me, well, aren't you basing your hope in the afterlife on the views of some ancient prophets? 
How do you know the Bible is right about the afterlife? I said, well, there's a lot of answers I could give to that, but fundamentally, it's because the author of the Bible is alive. Because the author of the Bible lived among us. The author of the Bible lived among us, and then he died for us, and he rose again. You know, some time ago, I read the story of a boy who was sitting on an ocean pier um, on the West Coast. And as he was sitting there, a stranger came along and said, um, what do you suppose lies out there in the distant West, you know, far beyond the roll of the waves? And the boy quickly and confidently responded and said, well, it's the Orient, of course. And the man was quite amazed at the little boy's knowledge, and so he said to him, you seem pretty confident in your answer. What makes you so certain? And the little fellow replied, well, sir, it's like this. My dad's a sailor, and he's been over there, and he's come back and told me so. And folks, when it comes to the afterlife, that is the hope that we place our confidence in as Christians. For you see, we, we have someone who's been over there, who's come back here, and told us about it, and his name is Jesus. He came and he lived among us, and then he suffered and died in our place. But unlike everyone else who has died, he came back from the point of no return, and not only gave us the assurance that there is eternal life after death here, but at the same time he gave us power that power which raised him from the dead. The power that will raise us from the dead if we put our trust in him. Jesus made it very clear that he is the way to heaven. Look at what John chapter 11, what Jesus said there. He said, I am the resurrection and the life. <laughs> Think of someone you respect, okay? And they walk up to you and say, I am the resurrection and the life. How quickly will you remove them from your contact list? <laughs> but if that person did exactly what he said, if that person said, I'm going to die and I'm going to rise again, showed up at your place a week after the funeral and said, I'm back, that would change everything, wouldn't it? Well, here Jesus says, I'm the resurrection and life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. In other words, he's saying, if you believe me, if you put your faith in me and follow me with all of your heart, you will live forever with me in heaven, even though you die in this life. In John 14, 6, Jesus added this, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Notice Jesus didn't say, I am a way. No, he said he is the way to the Father. He said that, folks. I didn't. He said he was the way, meaning that there are not different ways to God. Just like there's only one phone number that gets you your home 
There's only one key, so to speak, that opens your car door. Now again, if Jesus is in the tomb, then just ignore all I've just said. You can come up with your own theory, your own way to heaven. All are valid if Jesus is in the tomb. Acts 2, 24, 15 says, There will be a resurrection of both the righteous and the wicked. Hebrews 9, 27 says, Man is destined to die once and after that to face the judgment. 2 Corinthians 5, 6 says, To be away from the body is to be at home with the Lord. In Luke 23, verse 43, Jesus told the repentant thief on the cross, He said, Truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Now, what are all these scriptures saying? What did Jesus say to the thief on the cross? He essentially said that the moment we take our last breath here on earth, we take our first breath, as it were, in eternity in heaven. In other words, he's saying there, are, there is really no basis for the extinction theory or the idea that your existence ends when you die in this life. He's also saying, and these scriptures are saying, they're nullifying the traditional reincarnation theory. Today, you will be with me in paradise. Our living Lord says that there are no detours, there's no purgatory, there's no endless cycles to go through. No, when your eyes close in death, here, they open immediately in eternity. Now again, if Jesus is still in the tomb... You can ignore all this. You can come up with your own theories of the next life and what's going to happen to us when we die. But you see, if he lives, and folks, the evidence of the resurrection is simply overwhelming. If he lives, then you must make a decision. Either rejecting him and walking away from him or falling on your knees before him and worshiping him and following him. One thing we cannot do, and hear me clearly on this, is to embrace him as our savior, but pick and choose what we're going to believe about him or about what he taught. He doesn't give us that choice. He never intended to. In closing, I want to ask you again, in what or in whom are you really trusting? What is your hope in, really? Whatever or whoever it is, how reliable will it be in the end? How sure is it? I'm not talking about some hyped-up, positive-thinking type of hope. I'm talking about a true hope that sustains you through the storms of life, a hope that deals with your shame and your failures and your regrets, that gives you the power to deal with the disappointments of life. I submit to you that there is only one source of hope that is absolutely, totally, irrevocably, completely reliable. And that is my Jesus. No one will ever love you more than Jesus. He died to prove how much he loves you. And he rose again to prove that he is trustworthy. Friends, I live for Jesus because he's alive. 
I have no doubt that he rose from the grave, that he lives in me and he lives through me. And I have found that he is a rock upon which you can stand. He is a shelter. He is a fortress in times of storms. He will never leave you or forsake you. My hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and righteousness. I dare not trust the sweetest frame, but wholly lean on Jesus' name, on Christ, the solid rock I stand, all other ground is sinking sand. It's sinking sand. I serve a risen Savior, a God who's alive, and that truth has made all the difference in my life and the life of millions of others. Easter means that a living, radiant, powerful Jesus is walking at your side and my side. On the weariest, most discouraging, the hardest pathways of life, you are not alone. He is with you. I challenge you to reach out in faith to this living Christ. Ask him to forgive you of your sins and your regrets. Invite him to invade your life knowing that the same power which raised him, raised Jesus from the grave, is available for you to live in victory in the present and to take you forever to be with the Lord in heaven. Would you please stand for closing prayer? This is a moment of decision. And I just want to go back to say, who are you really trusting in? Some of you would have to admit that you're not sure where you'd be moments after you die. You really don't know what you're trusting in. My friends, if you want to be sure, grab hold of the arm of Jesus. He's outstretching it to you right now. Just grab the arm of our living Savior. If you want to be freed of the regrets, sins of your past, begin this relationship with Him. I'm just going to invite you to pray a simple prayer with me. A prayer not unlike the one I prayed many years ago. Lord Jesus, please forgive me of my sins. I so want to put the past behind and start walking a new path today. Come into my life and Lord, make me new, make me clean. I'm putting my total trust in you from now on, not only as my Savior, but I commit myself to following you as my Lord. Teach me, O oh Lord, daily what that means. And thank you for loving me, for dying for me, and for being my risen Savior. For I pray it in the precious name of Jesus. If you prayed that prayer, I want to encourage you to tell someone. I want to encourage you to come up here. Have the courage to come up here. There's going to be prayer partners up here. Just tell one of us of your decision. We just want to pray with you and encourage you on your way. Do that before you leave. May God bless you. Let's just pray. I uh, have a closing prayer here. Our Heavenly Father, 
for those of us who have already embraced Christ Jesus, whose lives have been transformed by his amazing grace and love, we just want to say a collective thank you for what you've done for us. We stand forgiven and redeemed. We are filled with true hope as we look look to the future because you live and we rejoice in the victory that we can experience and we will experience when we sincerely appropriate your resurrection power. Oh, remind those of us who are discouraged today, who are heavy laden, disillusioned perhaps, remind us, Lord, that we are not alone, that you are with us, that we can turn to you and we can give you our burdens and know, Lord, that you care about us and responding to our cries. Lord, we commit ourselves anew to your Lordship. Fill us with your Holy Spirit. For those who prayed, just prayed, Lord, this little prayer of faith, I pray that the seed of faith in their heart, Lord, will germinate and that their spiritual roots will sink deep into your truth and that your joy and peace will resonate in their lives. And for those who are are still seeking, those who still are struggling with making a decision. We pray that what has been said will linger long in their minds and hearts. I pray that they will not rest, O God, until they find their rest in you. May they find their rest in you. Our resurrected Lord, I pray, in the precious name of Jesus. And now may the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you his precious peace. In the name of God the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. God be with you. Thanks for listening. We hope this message has impacted you. We'd like to challenge you to take it one step further and get connected. For any questions or prayer, please visit our website at cschurch.ca. You can also like us on Facebook or follow us on Twitter.